So, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Then Isaac and Rebekah had Esau and Jacob. Remember the twins feuding all the way back to the womb? And we've been following the story of Jacob for a few weeks. How he tricked Esau out of his birthright for the bowl of, of stew. Uh, how Jacob and his mother conspired to trick both Esau and Isaac for the deathbed blessing which would entitle power over the tribe, how then an enraged Esau threatened to kill his brother, and how Jacob fled for his life to live with his uncle, and on the first night of his escape, fell into the dreams of an exhausted sleep with a rock for his pillow. We heard the story of how Jacob was deeply and desperately in love with Uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, but was tricked into marrying the oldest daughter, Leah, instead. And he could marry Rachel, too, with the promise of 14 years of free labor. We heard how Jacob decided to risk a reunion with his twin brother and picked up the family and possessions and a few of his uncles, too. And how the night preceding their reunion, Jacob wrestled with an angel or God or his conscience or his fears and left the encounter blessed but limping. And finally, how Esau and Jacob came to live at peace with one another, though now in separate lands, because they had so much stuff. Well, in today's text, all that drama is behind them. No more drama and soap opera theatrics, right? Just brothers who love and get along, love each other. And so the story proceeds now with Jacob's 11 sons. Jacob, remember, post-limp, is now known as Israel. But first, there's also a story about their sister, Dinah. And the lectionary understandably skips over her because her story is dark and unpleasant and not generally something told in polite company, especially church. Sadly, churches are in the habit of keeping these kinds of secrets. Dinah is raped by the son of the king in the land where they are living as immigrants. When Jacob learned of this, he was angry. But he also feared that when the news reached his sons, they would feel honor-bound to retaliate. So he kept it a secret and, in the meantime, arranged with the king for Dinah's and the son's marriage. Well, certainly without any say on Dinah's part, of course. Part of the marriage agreement between the fathers, the king agreed that all the males of Shechem would be circumcised, including the king, which would cancel out the need for revenge. But when the brothers learned of this, they weren't buying it. They waited, and then, a few days after the circumcision, strategically, while the men were still feeling the um, uh, uh, after-effects, they then killed every man in town, including the king and his son, looted all their valuables, livestock, and took the women and children. This is not a story with a silver lining in the end. And it's shocking that it wasn't removed from the sacred canon of scripture. But it is the explanation why Jacob and company moved from Shechem to Bethel. More importantly, a story like this in the middle of scripture keeps us honest. So, today's text begins the epic story of liberation and how it came to be that the people lived in, were enslaved by, and how ultimately they fled the same Egypt that previously saved them from starvation. But that's all to come. Today starts with a 17-year-old twerp named Joseph. 
a total caricature of a bratty little brother. But first, you remember how Jacob was tricked into marrying Uncle Laban's oldest daughter, Leah? So Jacob never really came around to love her. Not that that was the expectation of marriage. Leah was a plain Jane, while Rachel was a stunning beauty. However, unlike Rachel, Leah could produce sons, one right after the other. And after the fourth son in a row, Rachel, feeling humiliated, gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob. And they had two sons, who, according to the custom, would be considered Rachel's children. But then Leah wasn't going to let this go unanswered, so she gave her slave Zilpah to Jacob, and she had two more sons for Leah. And then Leah conceived again, and again, and again, two more sons and at least one daughter named Dinah. Poor Rachel could only watch, even though she remained the love of Jacob's life. Jacob absolutely adored her. And one day, to their surprise, Rachel conceived and bore a son. Jacob was over the moon. He loved that boy. Too much for the taste of his brothers. Of course, Joseph, like he would, made things worse by rubbing it in their faces. Sibling dynamics are fascinating, aren't they? I'm the youngest of four, 17 years younger than my oldest sister, and 15 from my brother, and 10 from my other sister. The economics of farming from when they grew up to when I grew up were substantially different. And one example, <clears throat> is that they all had to wait until they were 12 years old to get a watch. I got a watch when I was eight, and it's been grist for the mill for literally 50 years. However, I did not go around twirling and waving my arm in the air saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least I don't think I did. Well, Joseph didn't show such restraint, especially when his father gave him an absolutely beautiful coat. Plus, you heard how Joseph was a little tattletale. There's also a story the lectionary skipped over about a dream that Joseph told his brothers. He said, we were out in the fields gathering bundles of wheat, and all of a sudden my bundle stood up straight, and your bundle circled around and bowed to mine. Why would he tell them that? And not surprisingly, the story concludes, the brothers hated him even more. Even Joseph's beloved father reprimanded him for that one. <clears throat> One day, while all ten of his brothers were out in the fields working, and Joseph was hanging out at home. Now wait, he's 17 years old, so why isn't he out working in the fields too? Well, anyway, one day, Jacob sent Joseph out to the fields to bring back a report on what his brothers were doing. Joseph had previously ratted them out. So how do you imagine the brothers were supposed to feel when they saw Mr. Lazy Pants' little twerp of a brat brother with his big dreams coming in the distance? And yet it's still shocking to think they began discussing how to murder him and get away with it. It's a fascinating detailed conversation straight out of Shonda Rhimes. As the text reports, fortunately, Cooler heads prevailed, and instead of murder, they decided to sell him to some traders passing by. And the moral of the story, sell your brother, don't kill him. Amen, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But wait, they didn't kill him and only sold him into slavery? 
It's important to not turn this into a moralistic tale about family dysfunction. It's an explanation of how the family of Jacob in Canaan became the nation of Israel in Egypt. It's the beginning of the central narrative of their identity. A couple of details to share. There have been a lot of unfamiliar names this summer that keep coming around. Each week I've tried to repeat them just enough in order to connect what has been happening with who. And all the way back, nearly two months ago now, I told the story of Hagar, slave, Sarah's slave, with whom Sarah suggested, given her advanced age, Abraham sleep in order to provide him with an heir. The same idea Rachel had with her slave. Hagar's son was Ishmael. And when, surprise, surprise, Sarah gave birth to Isaac, it created a lot of conflict and nearly led to Hagar and Ishmael's death. But their lives were spared. And so there's a little detail you might not have noticed in verse 25 today. It was the Ishmaelites who bought Joseph and took him to Egypt, as in the ancestors of Ishmael, son of Hagar. Except in verse 28, the same people are called Midianites. You can use this in Bible trivia one day. But did you also notice that the name Jacob and Israel kept going back and forth in our reading today? Well, it's an example of the differing versions of the same story woven together. One school of thought continues to call him Jacob and the other Israel. And one calls, out, calls the same people Ishmaelites and the other Midianites. These two schools of thought also call God different names. One uses Elohim and the other Yahweh. The Elohists think that the reason Joseph's brothers hate him so much is that he's a little brat. And the Yahwist tradition, or, or was it the Elohist? I get confused by them. Anyway, the second thinks his brothers hate him because of his outrageous dreams. Oh, and you missed one of the dreams recorded in Genesis. You know, I told you the one about the bundles of wheat bowing down. Joseph also told them a dream that the sun and moon and 11 stars bow down to him. Not that it really matters which is more upsetting. Was it his bad behavior or his big dreams? But do you see why the brothers might have thought about cooking up a little disappearance? It's not an excuse, but certainly an explanation. But, so, okay, what's the point of all this? We can tell the story of Joseph and think it's cute, and isn't it funny how family dynamics can be so similar 4,000 years later? But these family stories also might be quite painful for some of us. Steve Garnis Holmes made a powerful observation. Robert Frost is mostly right that home is where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Mostly. But biblical families aren't havens of belonging, places of safety, or unconditional acceptance, nor sometimes are our families. Family is sometimes where we treat loved ones like we would never treat strangers. Home might be where monsters live under our beds and in our closets, and maybe in our parents' room. The monster of who we are supposed to be, expected to be, made to be. 
Sooner or later, we will have to come home and reckon with family, face to face or elsewhere, and whether dead or alive, is the final frontier. Our deepest wounds, our greatest fears, our heaviest failures, and sneakiest neuroses we have to wrestle with is Jacob and his angel. One day we have to go back into that literal or metaphorical house and take what's true and flush the rest. Honor the child of us, the one who protected and sustained us, and thank that child. Forgive ourselves and say goodbye and let the others go too. Let them stay while we move on. It's how we get free. I pray for your courage to go there. I pray that alive or dead, they will help you. But remember, nothing depends on them. It's your work. Do it. And with even those who sold you into slavery, you will be ready to act with grace and honor and generosity. Next week, we'll see what Joseph ultimately does when confronted by and shocked by the reappearance of his brothers years later. But before I end, I have one last big question. Where was God in the story? God is never mentioned. Well, it's not always necessary to say God's name because God is always present, always near. God is in whom we live and move and have our being. And yet when it comes to family pain, sometimes that's still our biggest question. Where is God? Where is God? God is the strength we rely on. God is the comfort which holds us. God is the hope for another day and the dream of reconciliation to come. It was Joseph's and ours. Today's story is not done and neither is ours. As unthinkable as it may be, one day we will reconcile with those who have mistreated us and those we have mistreated. But as we will see next week, Joseph did it on his own terms, and neither should reconciliation be demanded from us. But when the opportunity arises, sometimes confronts us, remember that though reconciliation can be frightening, strength, comfort, and hope are very much real. And we don't even need to say their names to know they are near to us in our heart, providing a very present help in times of trouble. 